0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to a season special on Build with Gen Z. My name is Rand, and I'm your host for today. And accompanied with me is a very, very, very special guest. I was, as Gen Z say, I was flabbergasted when I heard um, he's uh, he's hopping on the show. But today I have Andy with me. Hi, Andy, how are you?
1: I'm really good, Rand. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm really excited no to problem. chat to you. No problem.
0: So I want to do a quick intro. So Andy Bud is a global leader in user experience design and you know some of you might know it as UX UI and if you're into uh, the UX UI career or that is you know your career path or you're looking into it this is the episode for you. Um, And Andy is your guy. Um, He's done amazing work, been in the industry for 20 plus years, had his own agency in uh, the UK for over a decade now, has hopped on so many conferences, traveled the world, um, did amazing cool stuff. And he is a startup advisor. So if you are, you know, founder if you're into startups into design whatever it is really this is the episode for you so Andy um how did you start how how did this whole design career start for you
1: um I guess like a lot of people sort of of my generation there really wasn't like a a web design industry at the time you know I I sort of I guess I discovered the web in the sort of the 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 mid 90s there weren't university courses you know a lot of it was hobbyist it was kind of people just you know in their bedrooms, building their own personal websites. Um, I mean, this was even before the term blog was created, but a lot of people were writing their own sites for maybe bands or travel or just general interest. For me, um, I did an engineering degree at university, hated engineering, like proper engineering, not uh, computer engineering, realized I didn't want to be an engineer. Went off, traveled, I traveled the world and I traveled around um, for about six years in India, in Thailand Malaysia. And while I was traveling, I kind of, I guess I, I rediscovered the web. You know, I'd, I'd use it a little bit at, at university and college, but I was using it to research destinations. I was into scuba diving. I'd go and find great scuba diving places, and um, you know, this was kind of really naive. But I, I came across. I was sat in a in a in a post office cafe, like cyber cafe, in Indonesia, and there was this guy sat next to me, and you know, I was on Hotmail doing emails, and this guy had a screen. It was all black and green with angle brackets and stuff, and. And when he kind of got up to leave, I was like, sorry, but what are you doing? He's like, I do this thing called HTML. I'm building a web page. I'm like, you could build a web page? I was like, blown away, like that you could just do that and do it in a cafe in Indonesia. And so I was like, I've got to learn myself how to do this. And so, you know, I came back to the UK. I bought a cheap, you know, 100 pound computer. I would sit in coffee shops, in bookshops, and like read all of the books for free. Cause at the time I had, you know, I was unemployed, I had no, no um kind of work, but I was kind of learning, teaching myself to code. Um, I sort of initially kind of discovered Flash and was a flash coder and flash programmer. Got my first job, started building flash games, flash websites. But I started kind of coming across all the sort of accessibility problems that Flash had, and then I kind of fell into this realm of like web standards, people who were trying to build pages that had meaning associated with them, that were great for screen readers that were really, really good for people that had visual impairments or other kind of challenging experiences using the web. And so I became a really early um, fan and proponent of CSS. This was actually before any browser supported CSS. So I was kind of reading about the, the specs in the books. And then uh, IE 5.2 on Mac came out, which was the first ever browser to support web standards, HTML, and CSS back in um, you know maybe 91 or something. And I built what was arguably the first like CSS blog in the UK. Um, and I got known for that. I wrote a book on CSS. Um, I started an agency uh, in 2005, but rather than starting an agency purely on web standards, because I realized that web standards was just going to be the way everyone built websites in the future, I I wanted it to be slightly different. And I discovered this whole other community that had been growing a couple of years called user experience design. And at the time, there was a user experience design company in, in America called Adaptive Path. And I thought, hey, maybe the UK can have a user experience design company as well. So I set up ClearLeft, and ClearLeft was the first UX agency, arguably, in the UK. And, you know, because there was nobody really else doing this, I wanted to build a community. So I was like, well, let's start a conference. So I started what was arguably the first UX conference in Europe. And you know, and I guess just things sort of spiraled from then. And 15 years later, I found myself running, you know, one of the sort of the the, the founding and, and probably best known kind of UX agencies in, you know, in the country, if not the whole whole of Europe. Um and yeah, and that's the story of how I guess I got into into the industry and how I grew uh my agency, which I left about sort of six, nine months ago. That's Incredible.
0: So, for those of you know the the Gen Zs and the younger audience who are listening who don't understand fully what user experience design is, can you, in very quick terms, um, define user experience design? What it's about? How do you go through it? Like, what what is it?
1: Well, in a weird kind of way, I think the definitions are becoming increasingly meaningless. I think when I started um practicing. Basically, the way that people would design websites is they open up Photoshop, almost like a graphic design problem, and make things look pretty. They weren't asking questions around what the customers or the users wanted to achieve. They weren't asking questions around what the business wanted to achieve. Mm-hmm. They weren't sort of planning in advance the different steps and stages you would go through the process. They would just make it look nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so UX was, I guess, in a in a sort of uh, competition to that, saying, "Hey, look, we you know we can be better. We can we can work at a higher level. We can, you know, try and make design more like a scientific problem to solve. And that involves doing research, understanding user needs, understanding business needs. That involves planning out the experience, whether that's site maps, whether that's wireframes, whether that's prototypes, um, and basically." trying to build services in a much more kind of deliberate fashion now in some way you know ux became such a dominant way of doing things that people don't really build websites in the old-fashioned way so kind of i think most people now are ux designers of some sort whether they know it or not and so because of that i think the, the language and the terminology is actually having less and less meaning if you are a designer and you're designing digital products and services and if you were thinking about the customer, if you're thinking about the user, if you're thinking about the business, and if you're planning these, these products through, you know, workshops and, and whiteboarding exercises and prototyping, you're kind of a UX designer anyway. And actually, like, there's a lot of tension in the community around, you know, the, the term UX design. Um, because I think, you know, what you tend to find is people that self-identify as UX designers are more typically found in agencies these days um these are people that are often asked repeatedly to build products from scratch you know that zero to one phase and agency people are really good at doing that but in order to go from zero to one you have to do with this research you have to do all of this kind of um uh sort of planning and and, and what have you i think what sort of superseded in terms of language that people identifying as designers were product designers and product designers you know I've got very, very similar skills. In fact, you could argue they're basically the same, the same type of people that are doing it. But typically, I see people identify as product designers when they're in the startup space. Um, if there is a difference, I'd say that it's only minor. You know, it's like um, uh, sort of Venn diagrams with a little bit overlap in the middle. A traditional UX designer that might be working in an agency might be somebody that is working more on a conceptual level. So they might not have those graphic design skills. You know, they might be doing more research, doing more prototyping. They might work with a UI designer to kind of pull together the interfaces. Um, in product companies, Particularly companies are iterating, you know, they've gone from zero to one and now they're building out product teams of different verticals, et cetera. You probably don't need someone that can build things from scratch. And you probably need someone that is as good as the conceptual stuff as they are at the visual stuff. This is where you get the UX slash UI from. You know, the UX is the conceptual, the UI is the, the interface element that people interact with. And, you know, because UX UI is a bit messy, you know, anything with a slash in the title is a bit bit annoying. People just started calling themselves product designers. And typically product designers have both of those skills. The other thing you tend to see with product designers is they tend to have a little bit more experience on mobile. Classic UX designers that are in agencies tend to be more desktop based. And product designers, because they tend to have a bit more experience with mobile, tend to also be really interested in small screen design and animation. So I tend to find like really, really good product designers tend to also be really interested in communicating how the interface works through subtle animations and, and 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 stuff like that but but really you know i think to some extent that the titles are starting to be a little bit interchangeable at the moment um i guess the advice i give to people who are looking to decide how to position themselves is to kind of you know do a little bit of research about the difference between ux ui and product design think about the communities where those industries have those titles and position yourself in a way that, that that positions you for the industry you're targeting in. So yeah, if you want to go into agency world and you don't want to do front end, you need know, to do the visual stuff. UX is great. If you want to do a bit of both, UX UI. If you want to be purely building product design, position yourself as a product designer.
0: Awesome. Well, I know you're 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 a very big advocate of the you know the design thinking process or you know the, the steps before actually designing a solution and designing a product and there's a lot of you know budding or you you describe there there's budding between um you know the, the the business um agency and you know the profitable model versus what designers go for um and you had a very big thread talking about it so i would love to talk a little bit more and dig deeper about that because also a lot of our audiences are startup founders and you know someone who is, is also struggling between that identity of being, you know, a business person and a startup founder, um, but also being a designer and trying to um, do both at the same time where we want quality products and quote unquote, the perfect product, but we also want, you know, the, the product market fit, the profit margins, all of that. Um, how do you deal with that? You know, what's the differences there? How do you feel like the tension between the business side and the product size or, or the design side really goes um, and how can founders, really get through that step a lot faster?
1: Wow. I mean, great question and, and so many different threads to pr- pick on. So I'll just quickly sit back and, and just sort of tackle the design thinking because mm-hmm. I think it's interesting. Um, so I think th- the, the concept of design thinking sort of came about, was popularized by a design firm called IDEO. I think largely because a lot of businesses saw designers more as delivery people. You know, they were the people, you know, the the thinking happens elsewhere, it happens in the the boardroom, it happens with the strategists and the analysts. They decide what to build and then they give it to the designers and they build it. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was useful to kind of separate design thinking from design doing. Mm -hmm. Now, design doing is really, really important. But if you then create this separate idea of design thinking, it allows you as a consultancy to sell higher level strategy work. So that's sort of where, where it came from. The other area I think though, is that, Um, in a lot of big organizations people are making those higher level design decisions um, already they just don't realize they're doing it Mm -hmm. so trying to take some of the processes that designers use and teach executives and non-designers how to have that kind of logical problem-solving approach is really really helpful So that's also where design thinking came from. Design thinking is largely designers teaching non-designers how to approach problem solving in a design-like way. Mm -hmm. Um, And because a lot of companies don't have enough designers, then teaching non-designers how to have that sort of design thinking approach, I think, can can be really valuable. The downside of that is what ends up happening is actually um stratification so quite often you end up with the designers now being relegated just doing the design doing stuff and there's a whole community and ecosystem of people selling design thinking and doing strategy etc etc so i don't know if it's necessarily solved the problem um and actually a lot of people really hate the 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 language and the term design thinking because their argument possibly justifiably is that designers have always thought designers have always solved that problem so why the differentiation Mm -hmm. but for me i think design thinking particularly It's a useful tool, a political tool, that you can use as a designer to sort of navigate yourself up the ladder to have a a bigger impact in your organizations. Mm -hmm. In terms of sort of design and startups, um, I think for the longest time, founders of companies realized that the first hire they needed to have was an engineer. Because you can launch a thing. with an engineer with but with no designer, but it's really hard to launch a website, you know, web app product with a designer and no engineers. So you hire your first design, your engineer, and then they suggest you hire another engineer to solve all those problems and hire another engineer, and very, very quickly you become an engineering company, and design becomes an afterthought. I think it's even more problematic now in some ways because there are lots of really, really convincing um libraries that that engineers can use so you know it's really really possible now to to spin up a, a like a zero to one like alpha or beta product that looks pretty good mm-hmm. you know on the surface because you pull together a bunch of kind of you know ui kit um kind of tools mm-hmm. which also makes it really really hard for designers to kind of get a get a foot in the door however on saying that i think um because engineering has become a bit of a commodity you know because now everyone can sort of throw up a you know a, a, an ec2 electric computing cloud kind of platform you know you can you can build a you know a product you know you can clone a a popular product in a matter of weeks engineering doesn't really give you any more of a competitive advantage because everyone can copy it yeah, so which design. was going to be my
0: second question is like, is design or is user experience or um UX UI a competitive advantage? Because I hear a lot of VCs when like when we're pitching them, and you know, one of our arguments is we simply have a better experience because it's designed by people who know that you know know how to do research, know how to design experience, and their simple answer is, well, that is not a competitive advantage. So that I wanted to get your perspective on that is better design and better experience a competitive advantage as a startup?
1: I believe it is, but I can understand why a lot of VCs don't think it is. A lot of VCs don't think it is because their framework of what a successful startup is was sort of formed 10 years ago often you know a lot of a lot of vcs they have 10-year funds if they're really successful they've had three or four funds you know they're thinking of kind of the 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 old sort of technical giants um but i think there's a whole new sort of wave of designers and and, so vcs and founders who realize that actually in order to compete you you have to be competitive in order to be competitive you have to provide a better quality product and um, one of the things that customers look for in order to determine whether a product is better are the things they can see and touch you know they can't look at the code base they you know they can look at things like speed efficiency they can look at how easy the product is to use they can look at how well designed it is so Having a having a, a really good, well-considered customer experience is is important. You know, mm-hmm. there's this idea of the experience economy. People will pay more for something that, that has a good experience. You know, if you're mm-hmm. if you're selling a SaaS product and it looks like it was designed 20 years ago and it's just a bunch of columns and, 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 and rows, if it solves a problem, you'll attract a certain number of users. But if it solves it in a delightful way, you'll attract even more. You look at something like zero, zero, even though it's like a 10-year-old kind of finance. You know, product now the reason it grew so quickly is because it wasn't an excel spreadsheet and it wasn't an old-fashioned kind of sage accounting tool it was well designed it was easy to use it made doing your accounts less painful and actually more delightful and that's why this tiny little company in new zealand exploded and you look at a lot of the kind of the um the, the the sort of the the unicorn companies. I mean, I work at the moment for a company called SeaCamp. I'm doing a an EIR an empl- entrepreneur in residence type role with them at the moment. They invested in a company called Hopping, which is an online um, uh, event tool, mm-hmm. and that company exploded over 18 months. It went from like five people to sort of hundreds and hundreds of people. It's a it's a it's a unicorn, and the reason it's been so successful is because they've made Doing online events, super simple. Mm -hmm. It's not bulky and technical like Zoom is Zoom isn't the best piece of software. It's not great for running conferences and events. It's not good for hosting, you know, thousands of concurrent users, etc. etc. You can't do chat, you can't do any of these things. You know, Zoom are trying to kind of like you know add features and kind of like squish things in to make it more comfortable for for. Event organisers, but someone like Hopin, and there are plenty of other tools out there that do this, mm-hmm. um, have made a great experience. And so, these companies are getting valued at billions of dollars, not because of necessarily just the technical infrastructure, but because how easy these products are to use. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I would absolutely say that that design is a competitive advantage. Um, if you look at um, uh, McKinsey, McKinsey, big consulting company, a couple of years ago they did a report on. Um, the value of design. They looked at, you know, identified a number of companies which they believed had design at their heart. Mm-hmm. And they looked at their performance over a number of years on the stock market. And the companies that were design-centered outperformed the non-design-centered companies. The companies that were user-centered, customer-centered mm-hmm. outperformed the ones that weren't. If you if you sign up for an MBA, you know, the, the way that MBAs are taught, the way that business people are taught is that you listen to your customers, you deliver value to your customers, you you create a great customer experience Mm -hmm. and, you know, that's how you make profit. And design and user experience is just the digital version of customer experience. So absolutely, um, design can give you a competitive advantage. Now, it's not the only way. Mm -hmm. You know, you can be really cheap. You know, you look at companies in the UK like Ryanair, a budget airline. You know, they are almost known for being really really challenging people to fly with you know they they actually you know you could argue make the experience really horrible mm-hmm. but it's so cheap that you don't care so you know you can have a pricing model mm-hmm. now also in terms of competitive advantage you can have just better deals than anyone you know if you've negotiated contracts like you know like Netflix I think Netflix provide a brilliant customer experience um but really their competitive advantage is having you know the 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 content you know so they've negotiated having great deals with movies and tv shows and so you know actually netflix the experience could be rubbish Mm -hmm. if they've got the content so it's not the only way to do it but i think the smart move is to do a bit of everything Mm -hmm. you know so netflix have the deals they have first more of an advantage they've got great engineering they've got great user experience and so you're you're winning on all fronts
0: so essentially what i see happened in the past you know 10 years or 20 years is a lot of companies have solved major societal problems major inconvenient problems and now really what is left or the problems that are left in in startups is improving experiences or creating products that improve previous experiences or previous problems that were initially solved
1: I mean, to some extent, yeah. I mean, I still think there are big societal problems. Of course. I, mean, <laughs> I think you only need to dive onto Twitter mm-hmm. and, and see what's going on in the world to realize that those problems still exist. And there mm-hmm. are still the need for engineering problems. Mm-hmm. But there are lots of classes of of company that, you know, that have solved problems in a in an effective way, but not necessarily a delightful way. And people, you know, if, if you're choosing to spend your money, um, like I say, if you want to spend your money with a a sage, or you want to spend your money with a zero, and both of them are roughly the same price, but one provides a better experience, you're naturally going to be drawn to the one that, you know, that provides a better experience. And so mm-hmm. I think it is a, a form of competitive advantage. Absolutely. Um, absolutely.
0: So one of the things that you've tweeted about once is how, you know, historically, a lot of the, the startups that made it, the unicorns, really had terrible shitty user experience when they first launched and then after they discovered their product market fit and you know they scaled that's when really they started working on the design experience um, so for a startup that is starting now is that is, is really launching and creating early adopters more important than um really finding the i would say the design product fit
1: it's it's a really it's a really interesting and a really really tough question um And actually, I find myself really conflicted on to what the right answer is. Mm -hmm. As a designer and as a designer at heart, I passionately believe in the value of design. And I really believe that designers should be one of the founding hires at a tech company. I think at a tech company, you should have a CEO. You should have a CEO. Um, to and you should have some form of senior, you know, design leader, whether it's a VP, whether it's a CDN, sorry, a CDO or what have you. But you know that creates a really, really strong sort of foundation. Um, and I think if you have that, then you bake design in from the start, and it means that you're, you know, that you know everything you put out there is going to have a kind of a, a design focus. In order to be a really successful founding designer, to be the first designer in an stage startup, I think well, one of the problems designers have, I think, stepping back a second, is mm-hmm. when designers kind of enter into a company that already has a largely engineering dominant, sales dominant or product dominant culture. It's really tough to change that culture. If you're the first designer and there are already 10 engineers and all the decisions get made by sales, Mm -hmm. you're kind of you're hitting a brick wall. You're you're, you're fighting an uphill struggle. If you join and there's only three of you, you, the CTO and the CEO, you're going to have a much better opportunity to kind of shape that that decision making process. And so when Mm -hmm. decisions get made, they're going to ask you, they're going to ask the CTO and you're going to be a bit more in balance. So I think designers will have a much better experience if they join early stage startups, because they're right in the middle of that decision-making process. Um, Two problems I see. So one problem I see is designers often hate joining early stage startups. They actually prefer joining companies that Mm -hmm. already have an existing design culture, Mm -hmm. because they don't wanna be stuck working somewhere that hates design. But ironically, by not being through the door at the start, you're relying on somebody else to have kind of set that culture. If you join a team where there's 20 developers and three designers, you're already on the back foot. Mm-hmm. So I would really love to kind of get designers to, to start joining companies sooner. The other reason for starting to join companies sooner is it's just kind of maybe a self-interest thing. You know, if you're the third or fourth employee through the door, you're going to be owning a significant part in that business, you know, 2%, 3%. Mm-hmm. If you're the 10th you know, designer through the door, if you're the 100th employer, you're going to be earning so owning so little of that business that you're not going to really benefit. Mm-hmm. And I want to see a generation of designers who join startups, grow those startups, make a ton of money, then go and start design-centric businesses and mm-hmm. spin it forward. Because that's happened with engineering. I know so many people that have been the first engineer in a big tech company, grown and are now very, very wealthy and on their second or the third startup. I know much fewer designers that are doing that. So if we want to have design at the board level, if we want to have designers on the cap table that have shares in your businesses, who become angel investors, who want to improve you know, the, 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 the design fluency of business leaders. We need more people like that. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I've gone from working in an agency to being in a VC fund, because I want to get more founders understanding the value of design. And I want to get more designers Understanding the value of business, and I think that's really important.
0: Absolutely, and that's something that we embedded in our team culture as well, where our engineering team. So my co-founder is a software engineer. I'm I have a bachelor in business and I'm a UX UI designer and all the decisions are really backed up by design. Um, so the, our entire engineering team is really focused on design decisions rather than engineering decisions. Um, and we found that that have made the experience so much smoother. The product launch a lot better. Um, even feedback from, from customers, it's not you know, major changes or major pivots is really like, okay, can, like this button was not obvious. This font, you know, was a little bit too dark. This was that, you know, so it's very minor minor changes rather than major pivots. Yep. And it worked, you know, really, really well. And I became a very strong advocate for that as well, um, which is awesome. We have a 15 minutes left. So I do want to dig a little bit more into the VC topic um, and then a little bit more into your you know early teens 20s um, and see how you know how you got here Um, so how did you get into VC I know you said that you got into VC because you want to inspire um, more founders to focus on design but how was that journey into VC what have you learned Um, what are some of the most successful startups that you've seen and what do you think was so different about them?
1: Well, just to be clear, I'm very much on the sort of the early start of that kind of VC journey, so I'm really kind of at, at the edges. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- th- and and a lot of it is I'm I'm just learning about this space, so I'm kind of like you know I'm probably not you know much more than one or two steps ahead, ahead of where you and maybe some of the audience are. But um, my own my own kind of journey was well, first of all, as an agency founder, um, a lot of the work I do is with other founders, you know, helping MDs, helping CEOs, helping you know anything from big companies i've worked with you know um uh uh, you know penguin books i've worked with virgin atlantic so very very big companies Mm -hmm. but also sort of startups and often i find that whether you're a ceo of a a thousand person company or ten thousand person company or a five or ten person company the challenges you're facing are largely the same and Mm -hmm. so i love helping founders Understand how they can use digital tools, how they can change their culture to be more digital, more product focused, more design focused, and that's been really, really fascinating. So, um, a lot of the skills you use to advise the companies you invest in as a VC are the same skills that you, you know, I would have used to advise my my clients as an agency founder. Um, I uh, discovered SeaCamp. Really, right from the early stages. So, CAMP is a VC fund that I'm currently involved with. They are probably the biggest, most active seed and pre-seed fund in the UK and and, and the rest of Europe. They started sort of maybe 11, 12 years ago now, 10, 11 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I came to their very, very first event as a mentor. And every year I have mentored maybe a dozen or so um, founders in their fund. And that typically meant, you know, um, having meetings with them, listening to the problems and challenges that they've been facing and giving my advice and experience. And so, you know, when I left ClearLeft, the, the agency I founded, I kind of sold it to my team. Um, we became an employee-owned company, which is just wonderful. That's another story to, to tell maybe for another time. Um, and after leaving the agency, I like, well, I don't want to do another agency job. I want to do something interesting, and I want to use all my skills to help other people. Um, and I was chatting to one of my friends who was one of the founders of, of CCAM. So why don't you come and join us for six months? And so I've really just been there for six months. Mm -hmm. It's a, you know, a lot of companies, a lot of VC funds will run these programs called Entrepreneur in Residence, where an ex-founder, an ex-MD will go and join the company for six months and Mm -hmm. work with them and understand how the the sector works and help advise their their, their sort of, um, people call them portfolio companies, the companies they're invested in. And so typically, you know, I'll be spending, I'll have like a, a half a dozen or so calls a week with the founding teams, And a lot of the founding teams will be asking similar questions to you, you know, Mm -hmm. how do I scale my design team? When is the right person to hire a design time to hire a designer? You know, um, how do we, you know, bake design into our culture. You know, often people might come to me with particular problems that they're, they're struggling with around their, their go-to market strategy or their, you know, the product market fit, et cetera, et cetera. And I have my design thinking, on and I try and solve them? Mm-hmm. Some of it is just talking and coaching. Some of it is connecting them with people. Um, but it's really, really fun. And, you know, um, yeah, I, I feel that I'm helping more and more companies bake design into their DNA, which I think is really important for me.
0: That's awesome. So let's talk a little bit about the past and then we'll cover the future um, at the end. But tell me how your 20s were, you know, early teens, early 20s, because um, I feel like Gen Zs are really are terrified of how fast time is going, and a lot of us graduated during a, the pandemic, or had to, you know, you know, essentially two, three years of our lives just disappeared like that. um And you know, were you sitting on the couch watching TV? Were you programming? Were you studying? Like well, what did your twenties look like?
1: I mean, look, you know, the, there's, the, you know, there's a certain amount of guilt that comes with having a sort of a, you know, a certain amount of privilege. We've all got privilege. I think it's mm-hmm. important to understand and and, and you know, understand the context in which we were brought up, the time that we were brought up, et cetera, et cetera. Look, I'm a classic Gen X. I'm a classic kind of like (laughs) slacker generation, you know, and all of the kind of the the, um, the sort of, I guess, cliches are sort of relatively true to me, you know. I graduated um, in the sort of the early 90s. You know, I went to university in Manchester during the rave scene. I spent much more of my time in a club dancing than I did studying so I ended up with a really really rubbish degree um but because of the economic climate at the time and also because the gen z sorry gen x kind of community were a little bit kind of um not worrying and focusing on that you know I didn't I didn't you know I didn't care you know I came out with a fairly small amount of a debt because I, I was grew up in a time when the government actually paid a lot of your university tuition so I was really fortunate I left wanting to do something meaningful with my life and not knowing what that was mm-hmm. being an engineer wasn't meaningful um and so like a lot of people i traveled around and so i spent a lot of time lost you know i did lots of menial jobs i i i did you know telephone support i you know i worked in you know offices with banks of phones i worked in a travel agent i worked mm-hmm. you know um doing manual work um i did a lot of kind of rubbish jobs just to pay the bills to then go out at the weekend and have fun. Mm-hmm. Um so you know um you know what really annoys me is kind of like the sort of the 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 um the generation above me complaining about kind of the way that that Gen Z spend their money now. It's like you know like yeah this 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 yeah there's there's a whole kind of weird psychodrama going on but you know um I I traveled around a lot um, I, you know, I went off and I traveled the world, you know, and again, I was really, really lucky to do that. I could do that because mm-hmm. house prices were still low, student debt was still low, mm-hmm. there was still quite a lot of employment. Um, and so I traveled for six to seven months, seven years, I discovered the internet right at the start, you know, um, so, you know, it's really easy if you, if you get on you know, the, the ground floor, you know, or, or you know, jump on a, a rocket you know, seat on a rocket ship mm-hmm. and, you know, a rising tide rises all boats. So I was lucky. I was at the right place at the right time. I had a bit of a technical background. I was, you know, the, the first kid in my area to have a computer, a spectrum computer. I used to code, you know, games and stuff out of magazines when I was little, um, uh, I, you know, I self-taught program. I come from a, a like a, a working class background. First generation went to university. Mm-hmm. So I don't come from wealth at all. Like, you know, we lived in a council estate, mm-hmm. effectively a project kind of, um, you know, uh, kind of, you know, um, yeah. you yeah, know, We didn't own our own home, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, you know, it wasn't super privileged, but I was lucky to be in, in that environment. The environment that, that, that new designers find themselves in now is so, so different, mm-hmm. um, you know, you come out of university with a a ton of debt so the idea of going off traveling for six years is just ridiculous i can imagine people sitting listening to this going how the hell could you You know that's just stupid um you know there's a real drive to kind of like try and build up a nest egg to try and get your career going Mm -hmm. um to pay off that debt, to be able to maybe try, if possible, to get a house. Although again, I know that has really quickly become impossible, you know, yes. for so many people. Um, the idea, you know, I was kind of probably, I think I was at the last age of being able to afford to, to really do that, you know, mm-hmm. for most normal people. Like I I bought my my home, I think, at the age of so 30 or 35, you know. My parents' generation probably bought their homes at 25, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's getting later and later and harder and harder to do. Um what I'm actually finding is, you know, a lot of people that I know that are kind of in that Gen sort of uh, Gen Z space, either they're, they're, they're coming out of university, they're smashing their career for 10 years, mm-hmm. they're, they're landing roles that get better and better salary. And when they then get to a position where they have that flexibility, they then either maybe take some time off to go traveling,
0: mm-hmm. or
1: they do the whole digital nomad thing, where it's like, mm-hmm. well, I still need to keep Working, but I'm going to go and I'm going to spend six months in Spain. I'm going to go and spend six months in in Greece or whatever, and you know, or, or, or you know, wherever it might be. Um, and so, you know, people are still traveling, but they're traveling and working at the same time, and they're kind of joining those, those those two things together. And I think it's great if you could do that. And I think particularly if you're in this knowledge working space and if you've got a set mm-hmm. of skills that are really in demand, you don't need to be in the office anymore. The pandemic has sort of shown us that. So you could be a great coder, a great product manager, a great designer. And, you know, um, I was chatting to somebody yesterday who, you know, really, really talented um, uh, kind of tech person and, you know, moved to Ibiza and, and, you know, is working out of a co-working space in Ibiza. And, you know, it's an hour difference in terms of time zones with London, so they can keep still, you know, with all their networking and doing the work. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a lot of freedoms that have kind of opened up, but there's also a hell of a lot of pressure. Um, and, I you know, I, I think that's a real shame. I You know, I think it's a real shame that, that that. People feel so pressurized, um, and you know there's such a, a drive, a necessity to to kind of, you know, um, perform. And so the other thing I see is is a lot of a lot of you know designers and tech people who are who are in their you know, late twenties who have been working this industry for ten years, who are burnt out, who are frustrated, yeah. who are fed up with the power dynamics. Yes. who are fed up with the racism and sexism, mm-hmm. who are fed up with the ethical dilemmas that they get, they, they get shoved down their throat every single day. And it's tiring. And, and, you know, a lot of the work I do, as well as doing the VC stuff, I, I do coaching for, for mm-hmm. aspiring design leaders. And this, the kind of challenges that, that this, these, sort of you know, Gen Z um, leaders face is really tough. The other thing is re- which is really interesting as well is, you know you know, there's a lot of ageism and there's a lot of reverse ageism. Um, you know, I, I see a lot of older design leaders looking down on design leaders who are Gen Z design leaders um, mm-hmm. because somehow they feel they haven't kind of like done the time. Yeah. But, Not
0: just design is see... everything. In no, no, every no, industry. exactly. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. No, I mean, like, I I can really only speak from design because that's where yeah. my head's at. Mm-hmm. But you're right with engineering, with, with other industries, yeah. you know. I, I see... I see a particular trend at the moment, and I think mm-hmm. this is another reason why I want I, I want younger designers to start as the the first design founder in a startup. Because what happens is, if that startup grows, your career grows. You're mm-hmm. designer number one. When it's time to hire design number two, they're going to get you to do that. Mm-hmm. When it's time to hire design number three, they're going to get you to do that. Suddenly, you're managing a team of three people, and you've probably got there in six months. Mm-hmm. Another 12 months, you're managing a team of five or six or seven people. You jump into series A, you're now managing a team of 10, 20 people. You're probably having to hire an engineering manager to sit between you. Mm-hmm. So I've seen a lot of people who have jumped on this rocket ship, who as designers have gone from you know my first job out of university to being like the director of design at a billion dollar company in six years mm-hmm. or less. And with that comes a whole bunch of learnings. You're in the room when financial decisions are made. You're sat next to the CEO when these big, important decisions are made. These younger design leaders are as good, if not better, than people sort of, you know, who have had 20, 30 years experience. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people who have 20, 30 years experience don't see that. And that's really frustrating. So you get these weird, weird kind of... um, jealousies or, or, or kind of behaviors when you know people people just don't recognize your your, your experience because you you look younger and mm-hmm. you know i think that's exactly the same bias that you know people have if you look like you come from a different ethnic background or if you, you come Absolutely. from a different gender so mm-hmm. you know i think we need to respect people's experience and not over index on things like you know i belong to this this mm-hmm. demographic and this this age group um you know, those things matter a lot less to me. And, and actually, you know, um, yeah, so yeah, so that's my, that's my thinking now, I guess.
0: No, that's that, that's great. And that's something that I face, which, you know, as, as a younger female who just got out of university, building her first tech startups, a lot of VCs look at me and they're like, so you're 22, you don't have experience, you know, what, like, why should we put our money in you, right? Not somebody who's done their second or third startup. And I'm like, yo, I launched a product in three months. I have a team of seven. They're all dedicated. We're all working full-time. We got pre-seed. Like, you know, I still did it all. It doesn't matter. Um, but that's, yeah, that's a very big problem everywhere. Um, you know, but I think the in, the access to internet and resources gave us the ability to forecast 10 years in just six months, um, which is something that I see in Gen Zs constantly.
1: Um, exactly I mean this is this is it it's it's amazing like I I think that I think that you know I'm I have such respect for the current generation because they're go-getters that you know they don't they don't let blockers get in the way you know they're 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 really like they're really good at switching tools switching lanes being flexible mm -hmm. you know that's one of the things that I think that being in this current sort of you know high output media environment happens like I see people of my age you know and, and younger like you know um you know, you know, kind of um, millennials who, who, you know, have a very, very fixed mindset. You Mm -hmm. know, it's like, oh, well, we need, you know, we need to get someone in to do video. Well, who can we hire to do video? And then a bunch of the people I know who are Gen Z, we can do it. You know, we've never done it before, but hey, (laughs) let's get an app. Let's read a, you know, an article. Let's, you know, let's do it. And I have so much admiration for that kind of just doing attitude. And frankly, that's what you need in startups. You know, mm-hmm. startups are powered by speed and delivery. Startups mm-hmm. don't work because you hire a bunch of people who have got prior experience. Startups work because you can have a, a whole bunch of people that believe in themselves and can deliver and can execute. A
0: thousand um, percent.
1: To your, point, to your point around kind of VC and investing, I mean… That is a big problem with the industry. Um, you know, the reality is that most a lot of VCs are old white dudes. I mean, I feel really lucky at C Camp, both of the general partners um, you know, are, are are not old middle class white dudes. So it's really, really great being around people who who, you know, have have a more diverse sort of the background and can see that in others. Um in my experience, my limited experience, if you look around a lot of the kind of the big successful um, sort of unicorn startups the founders come from other places Mm -hmm. and they've often moved to a new country a new city they've often found the the current way of doing things really really frustrating Mm -hmm. and wanted to change that and wanted to build that so Mm -hmm. actually you know you, you you know you look at a lot of these companies and they're 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 driven by people who 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 aren't the sort of the majority and so actually I think that's a really really important thing like if you are in a minority if you feel that you're you're other that actually can often really really motivate you to kind of take you know take your entrepreneurial spirit and, and change things and mix things up well that um, gives me a lot of look, hope <laughs> yeah it's it's brilliant and, and I think as, mm-hmm. as a VC you need to be looking at that that energy and that enthusiasm mm-hmm. there's lots of research that shows that VCs are really really terrible at investing in companies that that have, you know, either majority women owned or mm-hmm. even just have women on the boards. And there's mm-hmm. been horrible stories of of, of of women, people who identify as women founders inventing male colleagues that don't exist mm-hmm. just to kind of like get through the gates that some VCs put in front of them, mm-hmm. which is just bonkers to think you have to, you know, you have to pretend that there's a, a guy on the team. So all of that stuff needs to be broken down. And actually that will be broken down when more younger people join the the the, the, the investing community mm-hmm. um there's a there's a community called uh genzvc.com
0: yes yes i'm aware
1: of it i don't know if you're aware of it yeah and yeah, there's yeah. hundreds and hundreds of younger younger um gen z investors and like hey you know if you're getting kind of you know if you're getting blocked by you know 30 40 50 year old 60 year old vcs there are hundreds of people mm-hmm. that want to give you money there. And there Absolutely. are hundreds of people that want to invest in you because they've experienced those blockers themselves and mm-hmm. they want to make your life better. So yeah, Gen, Gen-, Gen Z VCs is, is an awesome community.
0: Yes. Gen Z VCs, Gen Z Mafia, all of them are incredible. Um, my last question for you, what is, uh, what, what does the future hold for you um, and where can people reach out to you? What do you love to be involved with? Um, and yeah, That's
1: it. Look, the thing that's always motivated me is this belief that design can make things better. It Mm -hmm. can make businesses better. It can make people's experiences better. So whatever I end up doing in the future, as long as I'm helping people get the most value out of design, that's great. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I did that through my agency work with all the clients we had. I did it through the conferences I run. I'm, I'm sure I will run more conferences in the future. I'm sure I'll run more retreats in the future. At the moment, I'm really, really enjoying advising founders. Mm-hmm. Um, I do that both through Seacamp and, and, and through the, the people at the Camp Fund. Mm-hmm. I also have like a number of um, uh, founders and a number of startups that I advise independently. So if, if yeah, it's not the reason why I'm on here, but if people mm-hmm. are listening, they've enjoyed what I've said and they're, they're they're building their startup and they want some advice, you know, I'd love to help and, and help sort of push you in the right direction. I love. I also do a lot of coaching with with up and coming design leaders, helping mm-hmm. them navigate their career, helping them, you know, solve some of the challenges they're facing. A lot of the people I coach, I've got maybe a, a dozen or so people that I coach at the moment. All of them are kind of like heads directors of of design. Maybe their first, second, or third design job, but they're all sort of trying to kind of navigate through this this sort of challenging space. So if you're a design leader and you need some help, kind of reach out to me. And, and I just love doing that. Um, I'd love to get more involved in the VC space. I'd love to do a bit of angel investing. I've done a bit already, but I'd love to do a little mm-hmm. bit more. I kind of just want to pay it forward. I want to help the next generation, mm-hmm. you, know, t- take, you know, take 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 you everything I've learned and, and, and really, you know, really kind of run with it. Um, if you want to kind of, you know, listen to me waffle on, um, i you know the best place to find me is twitter i'm a very prolific mm-hmm. twitter user um, maybe too prolific at times you might need to me <laughs> on occasion but i'm just i'm just andy bud on twitter um if you want to find out more about my investing my advising my coaching i'm just andybud.com um mm-hmm. yeah that's that's the best way to reach out but yeah reach out wave say hi tell me that you you saw me on this and yeah i'd love to chat
0: Beautiful. Well, I will link, link everything in the show notes so you don't have to go looking for it. Um, and thank you so much, Andy. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today.
1: Oh, it's, it's been my pleasure, honestly. Thank you so much. And yeah, thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you.